This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 73 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me today is Pamela Petro. We're talking about her new memoir, The Long Field, which was published by Little Taller Books this year. We talk about her experiences in Wales and the Welsh word hiraith, one of the book's central ideas. We also dig into the rocky terrain of homesickness, longing, and memoir. On the topic of memoir, we talk about the pains associated with writing one, tone, and deriving universal truths from subjective experiences. Anyway, before we start the episode today, just a note to say that a lot of work goes into this free podcast. So please tell your friends about the show, leave a review on the Apple Podcasts app or whichever podcasting app you use, or support the show with only a few dollars, pounds, or euro a month, less than a cup of coffee, at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Also, to stay up to date with travel, nature, and place writing news, consider signing up for Genius Loci my free monthly email roundup of news and links at jeremybassetti.com. A new email will go out on the first of the month. So now, here is Pam Petro. Pam, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm deeply delighted to be here. Thanks for coming on. I invited you on the podcast to talk about your new book, The Long Field, uh, which has been published by Little Taller. It's, it's a beautiful book, as I told you before we started recording, Inside and Out, um, and it's about your relationship uh, with whales. So um, I guess to start, I'm curious to know how you two first met, you and, and whales. <laughs> that is a very good question. And thank you for saying it's a beautiful book. I think Little Toller did a beautiful job with it. I have no Welsh ancestry that I know of. Um, I'm Hungarian on my dad's side and German and English on my mom's. So it, this is not a labor of love of seeking ancestry. I went to Wales because um, I was a writing and illustration major, a made up major at Brown. And my last semester, I was in the art building and there was this hideously ugly poster, really awful, um, for a, an MA program called The Word and the Visual Imagination. <laughs> and it was at, offered at the University of Wales. And despite that hideous poster, like an embryo's head exploding, <laughs> it was really terrible. Um, I went I and that was, that opened a, a door that's been open for 30 some odd years. You say somewhere in the book that you feel uh, younger in Wales. And as, as you just noted, despite not having any ancestry, any Welsh ancestry, um, but, but also despite being like a suburban middle, middle class liberal, as you say in the book, naive American kid, uh, you felt at home in Wales. And I, I know the sensation um, well, you know, the, the special sensation a special place gives you. But I was wondering if you, like, you can unpack that for us about Wales. Like what was, um, what about Wales draws you to it? 
Right. That's a great question. Um, before I answer it, what place for you? What is what place does that for you? Spain, uh, more particularly mm. uh, Madrid and Seville. Yeah. Like yeah, a, I understand that. There's just a draw. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't. I can't put my finger on it. I don't know. I'm asking you a tough question here. <laughs> no, no, I have an answer. Um, I. When I arrived, I, I arrived in Wales with my parents. We had been on, um, they, they took the opportunity of my going um, to, to put together a road trip through England and Scotland. And then they dropped me off in Wales and went home. And I loved England, England and Scotland. Um, it was, the scenery was beautiful, but I didn't connect with it in the way I did in Wales. And there, I think, there is a quality to the Welsh landscape, at least where I was in West Wales in the river valleys that um, is easily read as metaphor. And the metaphor I read was that I was looking at a legend on a map. And for the first time in my life, I could understand how the earth was put together. Um, Growing up in suburban New Jersey, there was the built environment took over everything. There are houses and shopping malls and streets, but here in West, in rural West Wales, the university I went to is tiny. There were about a thousand people there and 2000 people in the surrounding town and then sheep and nothing (laughs) but sheep pastures. That was it. So there was no place on campus that I could go and not hear sheep bleat. And there was to get out into the countryside was maybe a five minute walk. Mm -hmm. Um, So I saw how the river valleys worked with the hills and I saw how everything crescendoed at the coast in these headlands. And I felt like I understood my place kind of in a, in a deep time sense. Mm -hmm. And before that I had never really felt comfortable in place before. So I responded to the landscape before I made friends, even before um, I even thought about trying to learn Welsh, before I learned the stories and the history is the landscape. You mentioned uh, how the earth was put together. Um, and you also uh, mentioned um, the landscape as a metaphor, but you describe how the earth was put together in a very literal sense. Like you can see the components mm-hmm. of the topography or the geography um, but when you say this, it also reminds me of um, th- this line from Wordsworth, uh, where he's talking about having a sublime experience. I think it was in Tintern Abbey, but he says something to the effect of, you know, being able to see into the into the life of things. Um, oh, yeah. And it sounds Absolutely. like this is what you're describing as well, like having that kind of intimate or kind of, um, I, I don't know, carbon <laughs> relationship with with earth right with the place yes that that that's what exactly what i mean um later i came to have um a a more layered relationship with the landscape when i learned the stories it held and you know that there's um like jack and the beanstalk you could read that in english and that beanstalk could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. But Wales wonder tales, the Celtic wonder tales that go back beyond the Middle Ages, before the Middle Ages, um, you could, the places they, they occur, there's one great story about four friends sitting on a magic mound 
And when you sit there, you'll behold wonders or, um, or wounds, one or the other, or receive wounds. And they do this, and there's a, a terrific thunderstorm and mist falls. And when it lifts, nothing is there. What, the, the buildings of their court, the animals, the fields are all gone. You can go to that mound today. It's in the town of Narberth. It's a, a Neolithic fort. Um, and experience that depth of, of human engagement with the land, which is came later. And that is enormously cool to me too. Mm -hmm. But my first experience was like, yes, as one, as one um, carbon atom, <laughs> set of carbon atoms to another. Um, and there is a word in Welsh called Kenevan. Mm -hmm. Um and it means literally, um, I learned this from Gillian Clark, um, one of the, the national poets of Wales. It literally means the part of the mountain that, the she that is home to a sheep. And she passes that sense of home onto her lambs. But with people, it also means that sense of rootedness and especially feeling a connection to a place you've never set foot in before. And you have that instantaneous sense of being at home. And that's what happened to me in Wales. Mm, that's nice. When you talk about uh, this depth of human engagement, you know, what ca came immediately to mind is the American perspective on history and time and, and depth. Obviously, as you know, um, the American history, uh, the, the United States portion of American history, not the Native American history, which, right. as you know, goes back uh, far longer. But for us, um, many of us, the kind of the sense of history is, is very superficial or, or shallow when compared to European history. And we do, from the American, I guess I can only speak for myself, but when I go to Europe, I feel, you know, as, as you recall, this kind of like deep human engagement with, mm -hmm. with place. I was wondering if if you think this is uh, kind of an American thing, <laughs> this this experience that we feel, <laughs> or or do other people, um, maybe Londoners, do you think they might be able to have the same sort of experience with with Wales? Boy, that's a terrific question, Jeremy. Nobody has asked me that question. Um, I think Americans are prone to it. For sure. I mean, going back to Henry James, right? The Americans' obsession with Europe um, as this place where they can feel anchorage. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I think it's a, it's a human experience um, because a lot of people, uh, the people who've read the book so far are, are British people. And people have been in touch um, through email, through Twitter. Um, saying, I feel this too. Mm. Um, and, and you've articulated something for me that kind of has been hazy on the, uh, in my mind. But when I see it written on the page, I say, yes, that's how I feel. Mm. And not just about whales, about places that fit for them. So I do think it's, it may be particularly American. And I think um, kind of it took an American <laughs> to write this book. Mm. I have feelings about that. <laughs> um, Maybe, but I think it's it's a human yeah. reaction. Maybe just Americans are are more ca calibrated <laughs> towards. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, uh, one major uh, term and idea that 
your book explores is the hiraith. Um, it's a term, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, it's a term Absolutely. that kind of kind of means homesickness or nostalgia, but not really. Um, and you mentioned somewhere in the book, and I just think this is a beautiful um, kind of description. It's I think somebody else's uh, definition or or description, but you you cite it in the book, and it, uh, you mentioned something that like translation is like kissing through a handkerchief. Which I, th- I think this is a lovely uh, uh, description of the, the the process of translation. But um, how would you kind of translate or describe this idea, the hiraith? Great question. Great question. And kissing through a handkerchief um, was R.S. Thomas's phrase. And R.S. Thomas is the other great Thomas <laughs> <laughs> of, of um, 20th century Welsh poetry, Welsh poetry in English. Um, he was born the year before Dylan, and he died 50 years later than Dylan. Um, but anyway, it's that's a great phrase, kissing through a handkerchief, to get at hiraith, um, which you pronounce beautifully. Um, I was practicing all morning. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, because someone has called it the emotion of separation, and that's... There is a distance between a poem in its original language and a poem translated. And it's that that idea of the handkerchief being in between the kiss. Um, here I th- when it's it, it's there is no cognate in English. It's the only cognate in the world. In the world's 7,000 some odd languages is um, the Portuguese saudade, um, pronounced the Brazilian way. Both are translated as homesickness or longing, sometimes nostalgia, and all of those, I think, fall short. Homesickness um, might be might be a great word to use, but we'd have to really question what we mean by the word home. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as simple as longing for the place you grew up or longing for the, the structure where you live when you're away. Um, and that kind of one-to-one homesickness. Home could mean um, the 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 home that you idealized, that that you lived in as a child, and the person you were when you were there. The younger um, self that had so many more um, experiences yet to have. Um, home could mean feeling at home in a particular place. Um, so I think you could say homesickness, but we have to think about what home means. And it really means is a longing for something that you can't have that is either in the past or inaccessibly in the future. In Wales, I think that the idea of Arthur as the King Arthur, as the once and future king, is the is a great um, metaphor for Hiraith. You can look for for Arthur's, you can look back at at his um, greatness in the past. You can look forward to him returning from Avalon where he's supposedly sleeping and will return in Wales' moment of greatest need. But he can never exist in the present. Mm -hmm. So that's Hiraith. It's the presence of absence Mm -hmm. um, in your life. The thing that you you most seek and desire that makes you feel at home in yourself and in your place, but is absent in that present moment. Mm -hmm. 
I like I, I like what you say here about home as kind of the the starting point for understanding this concept. Uh, I believe you write somewhere in the book, you know, home is a concept on a spectrum. Right. It's neither here nor there could fall somewhere in between, and it's forever shifting and moving around. But um, this this idea of going back to um, Hirai, this idea sounds, you, you mentioned homesickness um, and nostalgia. I think we have negative connotations with these uh, words. Mm-hmm. I mean, the suffix of the word, word nostalgia, alja, literally means pain, right? Pain, <laughs> and right. I, and I think, you know, we use these ideas or these words, um, you know, to describe this like wistful reverie of the past, but in a way that renders someone kind of, I don't know, incapable of being happy in the present. You know, at least that's how I understand it sometimes. Um, in other words, like nostalgia has uh, might be like a little bit debil- debilitating in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know what I mean? I know absolutely what you mean. And I think that most of my Welsh friends would look at Hiraith and say, this is um, a national curse <laughs> that we have the Welsh lost the great fight for the Isle of Britain. Um, that England, England pretty much rules the island. And at one point, everybody spoke Welsh or its precursor. And now Wales is is like this little I called it in the book, um, a green barnacle stuck Mm -hmm. to the western side of England. Um, And Hiraith as a compensation looks the there's a national habit of looking back at the glory days of has been and never were um, the Hiraith as a as a compensation. The stories we tell um, that render us powerless in the in the present and not um, not able to look forward to the future. So that's their take on it. I see it as this is where I come as an American. I think with my inherent. Um, eternal optimism, which can be really <laughs> greeting to my friends and my partner. Um, but I see Hiraith as the beginning of an equation. When you're when something's missing in your life, when there's that that presence of absence, that space. And I should say here, um, this is a good good place to say it, that uh, the long field is one literal translation of the word Hiraith. Um, there are a, a lot more common ones here being long, eith being the past participle of go, meaning like long gone or something like that. But there is one etymology that says hiraith is a long, vast tract of land. And my friend, the Welsh poet uh, Mena Elvin said, it's a long field when she gave a talk or, that I attended. So that idea of a long field is that absolute incarnation of separation between you at one end and what you desire on the other. But when there's that space, there's time and place for invention, for creative invention. Where there's loss, there's longing. And where there's longing, there's the desire to to fill that space with with new ideas, with creativity, um, with inventing perhaps um, a compensation, but a very important and, and creative compensation. And I think to me that when I look at all the, the great um, 
cultural moments, cultural products of Wales. Kiraith is the spark. Mm. And I think it could be the spark for all of us. Maybe it's the spark behind creativity itself. Mm -hmm. You talk about the absence and now... You know, we were talking about the long field and in and, and, and the distance, the room uh, to to create or to fill that space with um, pre- presence of of any any particular thing. I'm not um, sure how to articulate it, um, but I think that's a lovely way to 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 describe this this sensation. Um, we 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 just talked a little bit about you know the pain associated with. Uh, memory and longing, um, in, in this idea of hiraith, um, mm-hmm. which is also kind of interesting uh, if we connect that to um, the act of perhaps writing a memoir, right? I, I, <laughs> pain, yeah. pain. That's the connection, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I sent you this in, in uh, some of the emails um, we were exchanging before we t- spoke, but um, Mary Carr, a famous American memoirist, uh, wrote wrote that. Um, Memoir wrenches at your insides because it makes you battle with your very self. The idea being that, you know, memoir, the act of writing memoir is painful and, and uh, deals with some kind of tender moments in, in one's past, if if done correctly. <laughs> but mm-hmm. in, in your book, you know, these kind of tender moments from the past, like your father's illness and kind of your identity, um, these these crop up. So, you know, just curious here, does does Carr's description of writing memoir ring true to you? Or is, you know, writing memoir palliative instead of painful? Excellent question. Oh, gosh. Um, I will respond but with another quote from Mary <laughs> <Okay>. Carr, <laughs> where she says, writing, I mean, all writing, she's, she's saying, is like being locked in a cage that's on fire. And <laughs> that is how I experienced writing this book. Um, it was hard. The, the background of it is that I thought I was writing a book about whales through the lens of Hiraith. And that's what I set out to do. And I would send bits out. Um, it took, it took seven years to write this book with add an eighth for, for editing and, and revising. Um, and the agents I send it to just wrote me back saying, there's something missing here. I think we need more of you. And I was just horrified. I said, no, no, this book's about whales. It's not about me. (laughs) And after it took a long, long time um, for me to finally understand that I was absent in my book about absence, (laughs) which is a funny joke, but I had, I rewrote it three times. And the third time I realized that these Hirath moments that I was using um, to shine a light on whales, on its landscape, its history, its its mythology, had chiming moments in my life. Um, like I talk about in, in one chapter, um, megaliths, how it's the, the megalithic landscape of whales. Um, you're stuck with these great big stones that are fabulous, they're fascinating, they're beautiful, but we don't know why they're there. But we've forgotten as a society, as a whole society, who, who put them there and why? And what's that like to grow up with that in, in your backyard all the time? There's this, this thing saying, you don't know. Um, and so that was my original take. That's all I wrote. And then when I started 
questioning how do I fit into that? I'm not Welsh. I didn't grow up in Wales with the, with megaliths in my backyard. But I started thinking, reading about them and that creative hiraith that we were talking about, when you don't know, you make something up. Every megalith in Wales has um, stories associated with it, um, fulfilling that space that you don't know. They they get up and, and when the uh, moon is full and go dance at the sea, that kind of thing. And I thought, how do I do that in my life? And I thought of my parents. And some of those stories are about the stones turning into people. And that helped me create a link to my parents, the people just one generation away from us, that we don't know there are things we can't ever know that happened to them before we were born or that they won't talk about. And so in that chapter, I start to weave my, um, my dad's story. Um, he was in World War II and his ship was blown up the day before D-Day. Um, he was on a minesweeper and it was blown up in Sherbrooke Harbor and he could never talk about it without crying until he had a stroke. And then he was able four years before he died. Um, he was 90 when he died. So he had the stroke at 86 and it's the story started to come out a little bit more, but there were still so many things I didn't know. So those stories wind around each other in that chapter. So Yes, I had now to approach the book as a memoir and braid these two stories of the megaliths and my dad. And then later my mom, who has who had dementia when I was writing it and would forget as well. Her forgetting took the course. Uh, she forgot her life story, but we as a society have forgotten the megaliths story. And I wound that together. But it was enormously painful to write about my mom. And my dad um, at the most vulnerable moments in their lives and, and put this in a book that was going out into the world. Um, was I violating their privacy? Um, would they be pleased or not? And then I also write about my experience as a gay woman and my parents' um, difficulty with that. And it's something we never really discussed, but that's also extremely hard to write about. So my students come to this point all the time. This is why writing memoir is so difficult. Mm -hmm. And, and do, my, what do you say? <clears throat> and what do you keep private? Right. You know, in, in my mind, a memoir has a certain kind of tonal quality um, compared to other forms of literature. Like it's more, a bit more introspective, a bit more heady, you know, as if someone is intoxicated by their own experience. Like oh, it could yeah. be a good trip or a, a bad trip, you know, <laughs> uh, but you know, the me memoir has that kind of psychodramatic or vulnerable tone. Um, and so you just mentioned your students here and your teaching, like as someone who, who teaches creative writing and, and writes memoirs, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on, you know, the, the tonal question, does memoir have a special tone distinct from other forms of, nonfiction writing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. Um, the students encounter two, well, they encounter three problems, and we all do, writing memoir. One is, I'm sick of the I. I'm sick of myself. Why, you know, I don't, I don't like this idea of navel-gazing. Two, 
Um, this idea of what can, what, how much should I say? And where does my right to say it start to trample other people's rights to privacy? Um, and the answer to that question is, <laughs> well, <laughs> it, the book starts to demand its own answers. Mm. And you have to decide, are you going to be a writer in this case and give the book what it needs? Are you going to be a partner or a daughter or a sister or, or a brother or whatever um, first? And at one point I decided I stopped fighting and I became the writer first. And my parents both died by the end of, of the writing process. So in a way, I mean, that was a gift. <laughs> so it didn't have to come out and have them see parts they might not have wanted to see. Mm-hmm. But the tonal quality um, is another thing people grapple with. And it's this idea of introspection and heaviness um, that I think students want to try to shirk off. I try in the book to keep it lighter than a lot of memoirs I've read. Um, I try to talk directly to the, to the reader sometimes and tell them, hey, this, this is a hard Welsh word. Um, so this is how I want you to pronounce it. And maybe it's better if you drink some whiskey first. Um, I, I just, there are moments that are very vulnerable and private, but I try to balance that because I think memoir does sometimes have that heaviness and that um, sense of, oh, you're going down the rabbit hole of the eye mm-hmm. and it can be very claustrophobic, both for writer and reader. I think that's a good, good, uh, Good word to use the heaviness or the weight associated with with it. But, you know, I'm also (laughs) just thinking here, like, I wonder if, you know, if these difficult questions begin to pop to pop up in the writer's mind, if 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 uh, that means or if that's like an indication that the writer's onto something right? (laughs) that they're, they're, they're kind of wrestling with the very issues that they ought to be wrestling with or um, thinking about or, you know, that's where the good energy is, even though it might be associated with pain or, or something. Yeah, absolutely. When you start to get into these questions, it means you're touching that territory that is hard. It's hard to to walk over. It's hard to sift through. But another thing I tell students, and I, I truly believe, and it sounds so hokey, is that you don't know these answers before you start writing. You wander out into the quicksand and the quagmire, um, and you have writing is just truly, and this is the hokiest thing to say, but it's absolutely true. It's an act of discovery. Um, I didn't know. I had some glimmers of ideas about megaliths and the landscape and stories and, and whales and me. It was agonizing to put those things together. I mean, I really did. My partner teaches at Smith college, so she's not here a lot. Um, I ran through the house screaming and tugging at my hair um, because it's, you just don't know the answers mm-hmm. and only the act of writing and engaging your brain and digging through the sludge of everyday <laughs> nothingness. You know, I walk around like a reptile most of the time. You know, if it's sunny, I think, oh, nice. Or if somebody gives me something to eat. And I say, oh, good. <laughs> it's very reactive. But that thinking and trying to, to make associations and, and 
come up with original ideas. That's so hard. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's painful, but it's good. It's a good pain if you find some of the answers. Mm -hmm. One of the the benefits of of writing is that you get to kind of learn about yourself and figure out what it is you think and feel about yourself and the world. Um, But also, what about here? And we're talking about memoir, and of course, you've, you've written other books in the past, one of which is related to this one um, <clears throat> very closely in that you kind of traveled the world to, to learn Welsh. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that <laughs> sounds crazy, doesn't it? <laughs> so, so what about like um, kind of the travel memoir question? Uh, what are your thoughts on, on travel memoir? That is another great question. I love your questions, Jeremy. Um, I think for me, my, pre- my, my three previous books were about places mainly, and they followed um, the arc of my travels. And so that they were much easier to write. This is uh, the, the, the long field sifts through a 30 year engagement with Wales and takes my entire life as its material and all of Welsh history. <laughs> and and, and It's just, it was a lot and there was no arc to build it on. I had to create that structure and that was one of the reasons it was so hard. Um, But the travel narrative, the travel memoir in particular, I think is special because when I travel and I think everybody does this, I feel most alive. When I'm traveling or the born travelers, the born travel writers understand this. You understand this, I'm sure. You're most engaged when you're in a new place and it's like, I feel like I grow antenna and they, they grow straight out of my head and flap around and having that kind of level of awareness of seeking the new and noticing and comparing and thinking associatively about, oh, that's like this and trying to understand through your own experience, understand this new place that it's a creative act. It's, it's an engaged act. Um, and it's, it's place that does that for me most. And I think anybody who writes a travel narrative, a travel memoir, um, probably has the same kind of process and reaction. And that is what's captured on the page. And I think those, those moments of discovery and that sense of, of growing antenna and observing that's why travel memoirs are so special because I think they contain that excitement. I wish we were we were recording the videos because you're doing these hands gestures <laughs> over your head when you say antenna. <laughs> that, that looked. Uh, <laughs> did I do that really? Yes. <laughs> I didn't times, even know yeah. I did that. No, but this is interesting um, in the context of like travel and experiencing, you know, experiencing a new place. But this comes from a very kind of subjective. Um, position or there's a subjective perspective about the the travel memoir but also about the memoir in general um so i guess one of the writer's challenges of any form of writing i would say would be to kind of distill some universal truth uh from a very personal experience Uh, so what are what are your thoughts on this like um in particular to like just memoir, but also travel memoir. Um, should a memoir speak to universal truths? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not another great question. You're on a roll. I, again, I'm going back to my teaching and my students. 
a student recently wrote the most interesting, she had the most interesting experience and it was set in Brazil and it was fascinating, but it was entirely, um, it could have been her journal that she was writing. And I think the difference between writing a journal of what happened and, and what you thought about it, maybe or maybe not, versus a, a memoir, a book, is that the journal doesn't take that springboard from your experience to a universal experience. And that is the key. That's the key. That's the difference between those two things. And yeah, I have travel journals for all my books, um, including this new one, going back to, to old journals and, and newer ones um, that I look at and I see, yes, that experience is important, but I'm never going to include it for the sake of the experience, no matter how cool it is or how, how dramatic it's using that experience to make a point, to make a, a larger point. Um, there's a, early on in, in the long field, I tell this story about um, going to visit my mom in a nursing home and getting there early and walking around a pond that's at the, the foot of the, the hill the nursing home sat on. And I'm, in, I'm stopped by this woman in a car who's blocking the entrance, the only car in the parking lot. And she asks me if I'm looking for Pam. And I say, I am Pam. And she said, oh, well, Pam was just here. And she just said to tell you, she'll be out walking around the pond looking for rocks. If you go, if you run now, you can catch her. And so I thought, oh, wow, another Pam who picks up rocks because I have rock collections. I pick up rocks all the time. Um, and I love, loved this pond because it was had lots of turtles and fish. So I got around the pond. I got out in the path. There was only one way in and one way out. And nobody was there. There was no other Pam. Um, and when I came back out, the car was gone. And it, it just felt like it was incredibly creepy. It was, you know, am I supposed to be looking for myself around this pond? Who is she? Why does she know me? Um, and she was a creepy kind of looking person. She was missing a lot of teeth and it was very was curious. Um, so that was an experience. It's a great story, but I was not going to include it in the book because it had no place. It would have been, it, you know, just including it for drama's sake. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that that moment of going around the pond was what changed everything. It's what took the book from being a book about whales to being a book about whales and me. It reminded me that I experienced Hiraith in my life. I mean, for a moment, as I was running around that pond, that circular pond, I was really hoping I would catch a younger Pam and an older Pam and have that moment that defies physics where we're all together. And I thought, oh my God, there've been so many moments in my life that are Hiraith moments, the longing for to, to be in two places at once, the past or the future and the present, but the present was empty. And so it was the key to writing the way I wrote the book. And I was able to write the story but that was using the story to tell, uh, uh, to jump to a more universal plane. 
of when of explaining this idea of hirais that we all feel. It wasn't just a story from my life. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful story. I remember that from the book. Um, Pam, this is, a as I already said a few times, this is a beautiful book, uh, Inside and Out. It's one that um, I think readers will, will want or perhaps need to, to sit with and enjoy sitting with. Um, so thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast to talk about your, your new book. And um, from what I understand, you're going to go on a road trip. <laughs> you're going to go on a, a tour, right, um, in the United Kingdom. I was wondering... Um, if you can tell us a little bit about that, where you're going, and uh, when are you going? Absolutely. I'd be happy to tell you. Um, I am going all too soon because I have so much to do. Um, I'm going on the 16th of November, and I'll be traveling until the 2nd of January when I come home. And this is something Little Taller and I have been working on for a long time. It's The trip starts in London at the London Welsh Centre on the 17th of um of november and from there i travel um to warwick and speak at warwick books and then i'm in in locations on the um the welsh border i go into wales i come back to the border i go back to wales and what's really exciting to me is that my alma mater um currently called the university of wales trinity saint david is throwing a launch party for the book um, and I'll talk to the students, um, many of whom are receiving a copy of the book, um, especially the, the, far, the international students. And then I'll, I'll talk again later to the, the, the faculty and staff and some guests. And then I do other readings in the south of Wales and in the English city of Bristol. And I wind up on the Dorset coast at Little Tollers for the final reading. And it's going to be exhilarating and exhausting and involving trains and cars and lots of people. And it's going to be great, though. Sounds great. Well, we wish you best of luck and uh, wish you uh, a great book tour. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I'm, and I'm just so grateful and appreciative to, to, to you for inviting me and offer all your great questions. Thank you. And, and I'll uh, attempt this uh, uh, thank you and Huyul. Oh, I am weird. Thank you very much. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com slash support. Thank you.